And this is Austin again. And we will be going through your offline podcasts of Ruth. In total, there will be three podcasts looking at the chapters two, three, and four. And there will be also some dramatic readings of the text. So I encourage you as we're going through this to have your manuscripts alongside you. Today for Ruth 2, we are going to be looking at themes like kindness and favor or hesed and hen. We're going to look at gleaning and some of the practices around that. And we're going to get into just the ways that um, private conversations and public conversations interplay. So stay tuned and we will dive into that after the dramatic reading. Setting has been prepared, now our action begins. As you listen, close your eyes. Feel the soft, gentle winds bringing the scent of barley in the fields and experience the story of Ruth as the cinematic masterpiece that it is. If you were the director, what angles would you choose to capture the postures the personalities, and the unspoken thoughts and feelings of each person as they respond to one another. In each shot, where might we discover the hidden presence of Yahweh Elohim? Now Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech whose name was Boaz, that is, Fleetness. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. So she went. She came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. As it happened, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. They answered, Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, To whom does this young woman belong? The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the Moabite Moabite who came back with Naomi Naomi from the country country Moab. Moab. She said, said, Please, please, let let me glean glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. reapers. 
So, so she, she came, and, and she has been, she has on, been her on her feet from early, from early this morning until, until now, without, without resting, resting even for a, for a moment. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped, and follow behind them. I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from, the, from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May Yahweh reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, that is, of God prevails, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, May I continue to find favor in your sight, my lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, and eat some of this bread, and dip your morsel in the sour wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he heaped up for her some parched grain. She ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, Let her glean even among the standing sheaves, and do not reproach her. You must also pull out some handfuls for her, from the bundles, and leave them for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epa of barley. She picked it up and came into the town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gleaned. Then she took out and gave her what was left over after she herself had been satisfied. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Then my delight said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he by Yahweh, whose chesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. Then Ruth, the woman from Moab, said, He even said to me, Stay close by my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is better, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, otherwise you might be bothered in another field. So she stayed close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Thanks, creative team, for that Ruth 2 reading. 
Um, Amy and I are excited to dive into Ruth Chapter 2 together. So to start off the podcast, we're going to be looking uh, at how our two ladies, uh, Ruth and Naomi, are coming into this part of the story. So Naomi uh, just ended Chapter 1 saying that she went away full uh, and was brought back to empty. She's bitter and grieving. She's vulnerable. She's just feeling defeated. She's renamed herself. Naomi's experienced a lot coming in, and then Ruth is also also a widow. She's mm. also vulnerable. Ruth is grieving the loss of her husband, who's died, um, but also the loss of her family, of, of her place, of her home, uh, her culture, and she's coming into this new place. And there's this theme in Ruth uh, about kind of coming from emptiness into fullness, um, and it happens throughout the book in a number of ways. And we're just going to keep kind of track at that. And we'll keep coming back to it. Um, but it comes up in chapter one. And we just want to kind of start there. That in chapter one, it starts with this famine in the land. Uh, the land is empty. The land is not producing food. Naomi, with a husband and two sons, a full family, goes to Moab. Um, the land was empty, but she felt full. Maybe not physically full. She was probably hungry because there was no food. But she was full of what mattered, her family. And now, as she returns to Bethlehem, she has no sons and no husband. She does have a pretty kick-butt committed daughter-in-law, but Ruth doesn't seem to be counted in terms of not being empty. However, as they return, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi, while feeling empty, has returned to a full land. Israel is as much a land as it is a people. God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was to make a nation and give land. So the Lord has redeemed and restored and filled the land of Israel that was empty. So what might the people of Israel expect of this God when they are empty? So stay tuned for more of that throughout our week together. Mm, that's really great, Austin. And I also see an aspect from emptiness to fullness in gleaning. Now, I don't know about you guys, Austin. Do you know much about gleaning? I do not. <laughs> well, I have some fun facts for you. Uh, <laughs> we can start in the book of De Deuteronomy and Leviticus. God actually implements a law that prohibits farmers from collecting any leftover crops they would have left behind because the remaining crops were intended for the poor, orphans, widow, and foreigners. Now, there's actually three different kinds of leftovers. <laughs> the first is that there's stalks of grain that fall down onto the ground in the process of collecting the harvest. Now, these stalks that escape from being bundled up into what is called sheaves, they're meant to be purposefully left behind. The second set of leftovers are the ones where, as the harvesters are quickly getting all these bundles of sheaves on to harvest, some can be accidentally left behind in the field. Um, but God says, do not go back for them, purposely leave them behind. And the last type of leftover is probably the most intentional. Um, that is when the harvesters are not allowed to reap their crops right to the edges of the field. That is because they're intended for those in need to go and glean them. 
And so we see that this practice was a reminder to God's people to remember their own experiences outside, as outsiders in Egypt, as foreign gleaners who are dependent on God's provision of manna. In chapter 2, we see this lavish care on Ruth, as the verb to glean always has Ruth as a subject doing the gleaning. In doing so, Ruth not only receives care, but subsequently, so does Naomi. These gleaning practices are to show how God's people are supposed to be, and it is so good. Yeah. And here, uh, as, Na- as Ruth is going to glean, she gets Naomi's blessing to go out and glean. Uh, we have a new character introduced right at the beginning, um, and this is Boaz. So Boaz is this uh, kinsman, it says, uh, kinsman to Elimelech. Um, he's prominent and rich. Uh, he's, uh, the literal word is uh, a mighty man of power or a worthy man. That's the translation. Um, so Boaz is in good standing in the community. He's wealthy. And uh, there's this spark in the story. Um, Boaz is introduced as this relation to Naomi. And it would seem that he has the potential to make a difference in her circumstance. So as Ruth takes the initiative to go out and glean, as there is a custom and there's laws around gleaning, um, it just so happens that she comes to the field belonging to this this man of worth who is introduced to us, leaving the original hearers of this story wondering, like, what might happen? What could could this Boaz do? Um, What I really love about Boaz, though, is... um, Boaz is just doing his normal everyday job Mm. and being faithful to God. He is in his community. He's close to his family and he's in his own context. This is important because as we go into the rest of his actions in the story, as we see them, we don't see Boaz as this pastor or missionary or whatever token radical God following kind of thing or person he's just the normal nine to five manager of an accounting firm or the head nurse on the floor, the third year university student leading a small group. He has some position, but he's just doing his thing. And on Wednesday, um, there's going to be a chance for people to get together in breakout rooms and explore kind of what their context is. So for some of us, that means going into our campus fellowships, um, wherever we are going to school, that is our context. We have one to four more years of school, and that's the place where we do our thing. That's where God has us. But for some of us, we are already working or are graduating or doing a co-op semester. And so going into that kind of workplace field, it's a different context. And we want you guys to know that there's going to be a group uh, for people entering into the workplace. And it's meant to help you think about contextualizing what your kind of normal nine to five looks like next year. Uh, So make sure if you are a co-op student or graduating or are already working, uh, please go to that group. Um, and it'll give you kind of a chance, whereas uh, if any of you that are students can go to uh, your campus fellowship groups. Mm, that's awesome. And you know, it's also interesting to note that Boaz recognizes Ruth. 
She may be this poor foreign widow, but Boaz recognizes that she has taken refuge in God. This is why he says in 2 verses 12, the Lord of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Now, this concept isn't new. The Bible actually uses the metaphor of God or Jesus being like a mother bird protecting her young under her wings. And we can find this metaphor in the Psalms and also in the Gospels. Hopefully, later, we will have these Bible references up for you to see for yourselves what Scripture has to say about these things. But I just want you to keep this little factoid in the back of your pocket as this language of wings and God's care will come up later in other chapters. Yeah, I love how how you said that, Amy, how Boaz notices Ruth. Um, Boaz is, is blessing Ruth in, like, kind of in God's name, like the God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. He is acknowledging that that it's, it's the Lord, it's the God of Israel who you are kind of coming under the protection of, but it's Boaz who notices Ruth. It's Boaz who is like letting Ruth glean. Um, Ruth is kind of shocked at the treatment that she receives, at this acknowledgement that Boaz gives to her, um, but he's, he's blessing her for these actions of kindness towards Naomi and the family. Um, he acknowledges the incredible sacrifice shown and like the remarkable character in her actions. Um, he just, he blesses her in the name of the Lord, but then he's the one that's actually enacting that blessing. Mm. Ruth probably could have expected as this, this young foreign woman going to glean that she was not going to have the top spot, the best place for the gleaners. Like those would have been for the, the, the orphans or the widows or the young women who are closest to the field owner. Um, she probably could have expected to be vulnerable to, to the treatment of the men there that are reaping and expected to provide her own things. But Boaz just goes above and beyond to, to, to bless her in God's name. But then he's the one who's actually enacting this blessing. Um, so there's this, this kind of cooperation of Boaz, again, just this normal dude who in God's name is doing the thing that he believes God would have have like done towards this girl, this this woman. He is treating her like he thinks God is treating her. And I think it's just so cool to see to see that interaction despite kind of the different social locations of of privilege and vulnerability that Boaz and Ruth have here. That's so true. And I also see this theme present as we have kind of like she scene shifts we have from the private place which is within the home starting in the beginning of this chapter then we move publicly outside to the fields in verses 3 to 17 and then we move back to the private sphere by doing so the author narrates shifting points of view first in the home we see things in the eyes of the widowed women and then the next scene jumps to the opposite end of the social and economic spectrum, where we encounter a wealthy landowner, and the end chapter moves back to the women. If we take a closer look at these scenes, we can observe small reversals of things. For example, we start Ruth 2, Ruth going out to glean because they need food. They are poor, vulnerable, and needing sustenance. 
While Ruth arrives to Boaz's field under divine orchestration, she is protected from any sexual harassment, which in the days when the judges ruled and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, this is kind of huge. She's also offered a chance to drink water drawn by young men for her, which is highly unusual for men to be drawing water for women, let alone those who are foreigners. She is, in addition, given bread and sour wine to eat. She's allowed to glean and gets an epoch of barley. Do you know how big an epoch is, Austin? It's a lot. I know that. I don't remember exactly. Well, do I have this factoid for you? It is 29 to like 50 pounds, which for our people in the metric system, this is roughly 13 to 22.5 kilograms, which is a lot because Ruth is swole. Um, I joke. But as we can see, by the time she comes home, there is this movement from vulnerable to protected, from emptiness to the beginnings of fullness. And there's even hope. In the and possibility when there once wasn't. Yeah, I love that. That there's the seed of hope. It seems like um, that Boaz is introduced at the beginning of the story, um, like to the audience. The the narrator, the author, uh, says that there's this kinsman. But now Ruth comes back to Naomi with all of this food, and Naomi's like, "Whoa! Like, where were you?" And Ruth's like, I was gleaning in this field of this guy named Boaz. And all of a sudden, Naomi, like it clicks for her. There's, th- this could be a game changer. Like uh, a, a relative who is wealthy, um, like there might actually be some, some expectation on some care. And, and even if it's not expectation, like she is receiving 50 pounds of food. Like that is like the best relative ever sending home 50 pounds of food that I mean Ruth worked for but still and so I don't know I was thinking about this like like a second or third cousin uh kind of going and meeting them out of the blue which in my culture like for white people you know they might not have really close relationships or obligations for for that like extended of a relative but when I think about the Israelites, that means a lot to them. Like any kind of family connection means a lot, which as I think about maybe like my friends from Indian backgrounds, when they talk about their families, it doesn't matter if you are countries away and like seven generations removed, you go over to their family's house and like there is instant like relationship. So the fact is like Boaz being named here by Ruth, like when Naomi hears that it's him, there's this excitement. There's this the seed of hope, which as Naomi was coming into this chapter, that's huge. Like she is, you know, still probably feeling bitter, still feeling a lot of things, but um, it's really, yeah, I think it's really exciting for Naomi in the story and those who are hearing this story, like, whoa, this is really exciting. And 
So when Naomi introduces Boaz, she actually does something, which is introducing the topic of guardian redeemers, um, which is kind of tied to the subject of redemption. And so if we look at the Hebrew root of the verb redeem, Gael, it is used of a person 21 times throughout all of Ruth. So what does it mean to redeem or redemption? Well, the basic job of redeemers was to take responsibility for the poor by standing as their supporters and advocates. In essence, embody the basic principle of carrying responsibility for those who may not have justice done for them by immoral people or even by the person who lives by the letter of the law. Perhaps you're asking, but what specifically is close relative guardian redeemers responsible for? Well, here's more factoids for you. The first is that they are responsible for buying back or redeeming land that was sold by a family member to ensure that the land remains in the family. Number two, they are required to redeem a relative sold into slavery because of poverty, thereby ensuring freedom for the people in the clan or in their family. They are expected to redeem objects dedicated to the sanctuary, track down and execute murders of their near relatives, (laughs) receive restitution money on behalf of a deceased victim of a crime, and to ensure that justice is served in the lawsuit involving a relative. Now, it's interesting to know, although relatives are responsible to help their family members who are vulnerable, like widows, in order to restore wholeness to the family, they weren't absolutely required to do so. But in the larger story of God and the universe, God has always been the redeemer for those in need, the widows, the poor, and the outsiders. We see this in Exodus, Proverbs, and Isaiah. In Ruth, we are introduced to human redeemer, Boaz, who embodies and participates in God's redemptive care. As we are coming to the end of this chapter, we talked a lot about gleaning. And so the book of Ruth does something beautiful in presenting a worldview of theological social stewardship, which actually challenges our Western understanding on capitalism that maximizes profit at the detriment of the environment and without any concern for the effects these enterprises have on society. In addition, the Old Testament practice of gleaning further challenges our ideas of conventional land ownership. What Ruth promotes instead is to remind us what we call our land is actually God's, and we are to be stewards and keepers of God's creation. This actually reminds me of a time when my then boyfriend, now husband, (laughs) my friends and I planned to go on a road trip in the summer. Um, We were going from Vancouver to Winnipeg because that's where my husband's parents are. And it's like visiting the family for the first time, which is kind of huge in Asian culture, probably not so much in like Western culture. Um, But the plan was we're going to borrow a friend's car and we would do this awesome road trip from Vancouver to Winnipeg, like going through the Canada side, saying hi to friends. And then we would double back down to the U.S. and like get back to um, Vancouver. And so as we were getting close to leaving, the friend whose car we were going to borrow, due to some personal reasons, 
he couldn't make the trip. And so we were thinking to ourselves like, oh, what are we going to do? Because that's the only car that we had planned to drive across Canada. And at the time, my three friends and I, like, we didn't have a lot of money, but I was like, we can make this work. However, despite everything that had happened to my friend, he was still like super generous in lending us his car for 10 days for the road trip. And so that to me is an example of a modern Boaz, someone who has given so generally, like almost sacrificially, when he he technically didn't need to lend us his car. And so the last little factoid we want to leave you with is the Jewish word hen. In chapter two, we see hen intertwining with his head. Hen means favor. And it is used when Ruth finds favor in someone's eyes, verse 2, and finds favor in the eyes of Boaz, verse 10 and 13. The distinction here is that hen may be seen as generosity that flows out of one's abundance, whereas hesed is where one gives sacrificially. We see this at the end of the day when Naomi interprets the hen Ruth receives as a said from Boaz, who is reflecting has said, because Boaz's generosity exceeded the legal provisions of gleaning. Going home with 30 to 50 pounds of barley is actually cutting into Boaz's income. It's a sacrifice on his part to give Ruth and Naomi so much. And so the Bible Project has a really wonderful resource that explains has said. We will be providing a link and so we encourage you to take some time now to watch this five-minute video explaining a really wonderful truth about our loving God. Thanks for joining.